0: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count for your career, for your family, for your life.
4: Sometimes doing the right thing comes at a cost. Be careful who you fall in love with.
1: Hey, it's 50 Cent.
5: And I'm Charlie Webster. This is Surviving El Chapo, the twins who brought down a drug lord. Season
6: two.
1: know all too well the struggle that comes with choosing a different life for me it was music that allowed me to get out of the life and write a new destiny for myself for pedro and margarito flores jr the flores twins it's been a long journey since they were sat in the back seat of their father's car at seven years old loaded with drugs as it was moved across the mexican border that's what started it all without even knowing they were put on a path that they've spent the last 14 years trying to leave to change the legacy of the Flores name. Billions of dollars and thousands of decisions over decades have brought the Flores family to where they are today.
5: The brothers served their time, but as far as the government is concerned, the Flores family haven't satisfied their debt to society. Part
4: of the reason why I wanted to share the story these decisions we make, no matter how they are or whatever we try to fix, it's coming at a cost. To this day, we're still, we're still trying to make things right. We're still trying to correct our wrongs, and and you know we might get something right on one end and fail on somewhere else. As men, I've told about this plenty of times. The man that I was was that I promised her that we we're gonna have a different life that I promised her that I was not gonna put her in harm's way like her past relationships. And I failed at that, by far. I always hold myself responsible because I think that's what you do as a leader, as a you know, as a head of your house or or the man that I am. I think I hold myself responsible for leaving my family, get to this point, you know, my children, I failed them.
5: After the Wives were initially arrested and let go after two days in 2021, a case started to be built by the government against Val and Viv. Remember, Val helped the government as part of Jay and Pete's cooperation and turned over $4 million to the feds from the twins' drug activity back in 2010. As part of the twins' case, the government did a forensic investigation into their financials and couldn't find any further money that was out on the streets. But it turns out there was more money owed to the twins from drug debts that the wives and Armando, the twins' older brother, collected and hid from the government. The government claimed they didn't know about this money until they received a tip-off from someone very close to the family.
4: Jerome Finnegan is the uncle of Vivi's brother-in-law. Jerome Finnegan was one of the corrupt Chicago police officers that got picked up on a sting back in 2006. And a part of that arrest was Vivi's ex-fiance, Keith Herrera, and Jerome and other police officers.
5: Police officers Keith Herrera and Jerome Finnegan were partners on the force together and known as two of the dirtiest cops in Chicago. The two of them topped the Chicago Police Department's misconduct complaints list. In the five years between 2001 and 2006, Keith amassed 53 citizen complaints, Jerome, 52. Keith and Jerome were closely linked to Viv. Before Viv got together with Pete, she was actually engaged to Keith. And Viv's sister, Bianca, ended up marrying Jerome's nephew, In 2006, Keith, Jerome, and other police officers were arrested for making unlawful arrests and searches, gathering false evidence, and stealing money from drug dealers. In one instance, during an unlawful traffic stop, they took the person's house keys, broke into their house, and took half a million dollars in cash.
4: Well, when Keith flipped, he, you know, flipped with the feds to cooperate against his fellow officers. Jerome Finnegan wanted to hire someone to kill
0: him.
5: Keith turned against Jerome and the other officers and worked with the police to bring them down. Jerome found out and plotted to kill his former partner, Keith, for cooperating. But the feds foiled the murder-for-hire plot and Jerome was sentenced to 12 years in prison his cooperation meant he was only sentenced to two months.
4: Okay. So, you know, he got arrested in 2006 and he's in the in the MCC, right? Metropolitan Correctional Center in Chicago. The federal holdover, right? For, for federal inmates. And he's in the shoe. He's in protective custody. He's the orderly at that time when me and my brother come in. So orderly means he cleans up he helps out, you know, the correctional officers. If you need something, you ask the orderly. Like, so he's, you know, sweeps, mops, cleans up, might pass the food trays or whatever the case is.
5: Jerome was the orderly at MCC Chicago when Pete and Jay first went to prison and were in the shoe there. They didn't know who Jerome was.
4: As the weeks went by, you know, stop by, hey, I had no idea that he was related to Vivi's like related through marriage to Vivi's family. Like, I know who he is from the street, like I know of him, but um, P you know, while we're in the shoe, they start talking and he's like, hey, I know you. And they're like, yeah, I know, you know, like they know that he knows that Viviana's Peter's wife. So they start making small talk, right? Uh, Pete, you know, right away befriends them and moving forward, I guess, His nephew, by chance, was a person that my older brother had helped bring back the money from Washington, DC. And he goes, the nephews go visit his uncle, and the uncle convinces him, Jerome, to bring the information to the feds so that he could get a lighter sentence. So that's how the feds found out. Jerome
5: was desperate to get out of prison. He would do anything he could to get information out of inmates that he could use as a bargaining tool to help him get his sentence reduced. That's why he befriended Pete. Jerome found out that there was money hidden from the twins' drug debts. Jerome's nephew, the one married to Viv's sister, Bianca, helped Armando, Jay and Pete's older brother, to collect the $4 million from DC that Val turned over to the government. But Jerome knew there was more. He pushed his nephew to give that information to the feds. The tip off from Jerome is what the government used to arrest Val and Viv. Jerome didn't end up getting any time off his sentence. Armando was also arrested for his part in the collection of the money. If you remember when 50 and I were recording season one, the Flores family found out that Armando had decided to cooperate with the government after his arrest. Armando confessed that there was more money and provided evidence that ultimately implicated the wives. Armando was given an ultimatum by the government to either serve serious time and face deportation if you recall JMP got him a US visa as part of their deal to cooperate, or get favourable terms in exchange for information on the wives.
7: Jay and Peter's older brother, he's like my best friend. And I mean, I love him unconditionally and I worry about his immigration status and him being deported.
4: I mean, no matter what, I'm I'm for my brother to be put in the best scenario possible, you know? For himself, like, and his family, you know? Just can't wait to put this behind us.
8: And just get through it as a family, like we've always done.
4: The amount of resources it takes to do something like this. I wonder why the streets are flooded with heroin and cocaine and even more dangerous stuff now. fentanyl and all kinds of shit that will kill you. Because, you know, that's what I'd be focused on. Every office has the decision to, you know, where they put their time and resources at. And I can't agree that this was the best you know, way to do that, it. but that's just my opinion, you yeah? know. Meanwhile, all, of, all of the other people just keep doing what I was doing. You know, you know the next P&J is probably out there right now, building his empire around the others The first thing
6: that a prosecutor will generally tell a cooperator or potential cooperator is that cooperation is an all or nothing proposition.
5: That's Michael Ferrara, the assistant US attorney that worked JMP's case against El Chapo from the very beginning. He worked alongside Thomas Shakeshaft and Adam Fells.
6: And the government needs to needs that to be true. When they say it they absolutely mean it. And so the reason for a prosecution like that is that it's a betrayal of trust at some level, that they were given a second chance, they were given a clean slate, and decided to to use drug proceeds for material things in a way that was very avoidable.
5: According to the government, in addition to the $4 million from DC that Val turned over to them, there was another $2.3 million that they never told anyone about. One day, a U-Haul truck arrived at the twins' older brother Armando's house in Austin, Texas. The truck was piled high with second-hand furniture. Hidden inside the furniture was stacks of cash, $2.3 million worth. Armando stored the money under his porch and sat on it for four years until 2015, when he started dispersing it to the wives in increments on average of $9,000 via U.S. Priority Mail and UPS packages, as well as through gift cards. He would then pay himself a fee out of each delivery. The government accused the wives of living a lavish lifestyle, using the money to pay for luxury cars, designer purses, a Peloton exercise bike, as well as private school for their children, living costs like rent, and over $99,000 on vacations.
6: The government clearly made the decision that that couldn't be tolerated, that they needed to send a message to other cooperators, to just society as a whole, that that if you join the government's team, that has to have meaning from sort of beginning to end. You can't be a cooperator and, and hiding drug proceeds and living off of drug proceeds at the same time.
7: I feel that in Jay and Peter's sentencing memorandum, they spun it to the court. Like, we basically benefited because we were given immunity. But fast forward 10 years, they come and indict us. It's like they're trying to change the narrative. And I feel like the U.S. Attorney's Office today is very different than what it was back in 2008. And I feel that they didn't have a certain rule book to go by. And because this case was so big for Jay and Peter, I feel like there were mistakes made because it's never been done before on both sides. I don't fault anyone. I just feel like the U.S. Attorney's Office at the time, they didn't have the, I want to say, the right guidance. We were given, you know, certain benefits. I feel that today, those things that we were promised, that Obviously, they're frowned upon, but at the same time, you can't punish our family because that's something that somebody that was a representative of the government, you know, which is Thomas Shakeshaft, he actually promised us these certain things when it comes to immunity or when it comes to us being able to keep a portion of the money. So if we were given these promises and we were led to believe that this was going to be embedded in their cooperation, then how is it when you fast forward 10 years, they're able to charge us on the things that we were supposed to be promised and we were given. On March 24th, 2011, the day I proffered, I spoke to Thomas Shakeshaft, which is a U.S. attorney that was in charge. He basically told me not to worry. I'm not gonna be charged. I took that as reassurance that they would never prosecute me. At my proper meeting was Thomas Shakeshaft, Michael Ferrara, and DEA agents that were involved in the case. Thomas Shakeshaft, he told Jay and Peter at a proffer session that he didn't want to wipe them out of their money. So... These things are being said to our husbands. These things are being said to us. These things are not, you know, they're not seizing certain things. Even though I'm saying that we paid for all of this stuff with drug proceeds from our husband's business, it's like they're allowing us to keep them. And so I don't understand how you can turn around and a decade later come back and then charge us. The wives filed
5: a motion to dismiss their charges in 2022, claiming that the twins' deal provided them with immunity from charges related to the twins' crimes. The wives argued that the government allowed them to keep the money and that in a proper session with U.S. Assistant Attorney Thomas Shakeshaft, Val had tried to make the government aware there was extra money out there. But they didn't want to hear about it. All they were focused on was getting El Chapo behind bars. A pre-trial hearing was held for Judge Matthew Kennelly to examine the evidence. The wives had planned to have US Assistant Attorney Thomas Shakeshaft testify. But one week before the hearing, on July the 19th, Shakeshaft died from chronic health problems and alcoholism. His alcoholism was blamed, in part, on the stress of the Flores case. Michael Ferrara was called by the government to be a witness. Here's what he had to say to us about the alleged immunity
6: deal. The way that it was presented in that defense is effectively that they were immunized forevermore, that they could do whatever they wanted in in the future, which I don't know if that's a thing, period, in law enforcement, but it certainly wasn't here. And, And immunity like that can only come in writing and it can only come from the US attorney. And I'm positive that no immunity was issued by any U.S. attorney in Chicago. The, the wives were entitled to take, I mean, just blatant drug proceeds and do whatever they want with them. The other comment I can make is that the, the whole thing is is very unnecessary and unfortunate for their families. And I truly do believe that, that Pete and Jay cooperated to give their families a better life. And they had the opportunity to do that and so to allow sort of like material things like spending money private schools going on trips the, the kind of things that, that they appear to have spent their money on all of that is just stupid in, in my opinion i mean to risk your freedom risk the safety of your families over things like that it's just sad it's a sad thing for, for their families it's just a really unfortunate thing that those kids were deprived of being around their dads for so long and now for however long they're going to be Deprived of being around their mothers in a meaningful way, all for something that was 100% avoidable if they just would have, you know, sort of kept their heads down, drove a used minivan and those kind of things. The flip side to that, though, is I mean, in comparison to, again, like two tons a month of cocaine coming into Chicago and Chopper being prosecuted and all that, you're talking about a much smaller sum of, of money and whether it sent the right message to use government resources like that to go after people who cooperated in in, in a way that that did a lot of of good and had a lot of benefit to DOJ. So I I think reasonable minds could differ on that, and whether it sends a strong enough message of what should happen that, that it's worth the potential downside.
5: According to the Wives and their lawyers, It was the government that broke its promise to the Flores family. From the very beginning, the twins' cooperation and Pete's eventual testimony in court against El Chapo was done with the understanding that the rest of the family would be kept out of it. When questioned during the El Chapo trial, Pete testified that his wife, Viv, had been given immunity as part of his cooperation deal. The point was made by Val and Viv's defense team that Pete spent 18 months being prepped by the government to take the stand against El Chapo and at no point including under oath in court was there ever any challenge to the notion that the wives had immunity the wives argue that the government knew that there was money they were using to live off and that it was used to pay for their kids education and their own living expenses as single mothers They had to move their families across the country every time Jay and Pete were transferred. Viv had to move 16 times due to viable threats on her life. The motion to dismiss the charges was denied. They each had a choice to take their case to trial, but they were advised that the negative public perception would make a trial difficult. Instead, they each pled guilty to money laundering conspiracy
2: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
1: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect.
5: Viv was sentenced to three and a half years in prison and ordered to pay $504,858 in forfeiture. She went to prison on the 19th of October,
8: 2023. It's definitely scary because, I mean, i I mean, Peter is a very, um, you know, his presence is, he's, like the rock of our family. I felt like I took his place when he had to leave. You know, I took over, and I had to do, I had to be mom and dad and everything.
4: This is what kills me.
8: I think that it's, you know, it's really, really definitely hard. I wasn't built for this. Definitely wasn't built for this. But a strong woman, and by far, I know I am. I think that my kids. Would definitely be very um this is a scar that probably would never ever ever um will be able to repair. We sit here and you know we're you know, we've been here with you, Charlie, for so many days and you know, we talk about we the kids and how we wanted to change their lives and I feel like we're right back we're right back exactly where
5: We never wanted to be. Val received the same sentence as Viv. Three and a half years in prison, plus a $504,858 forfeiture. She goes to prison on January the 10th, 2024.
7: I felt like I was being targeted. I felt like they wanted to make an example out of me
2: which is hurtful.
7: But after understanding, you know, the government, the prosecutors that are in charge today of the case, I feel like they're only doing their job. And I know that if they were, you know, the prosecutors back then, when my husband was cooperating, I feel like things would have been a lot different. I did actually testify at my hearing, and I did take accountability for money laundering. However, I did believe that I had immunity, whether the government agrees with that or not, or just going to agree to disagree. But unfortunately, I'm going to have to go to prison, thing that I'm fighting with, that I'm struggling with. You know, in court, I apologize to my children, you know, for the pain I caused, and I just regret putting them through this again. But I feel really blessed with the time that I did get because I got three and a half years and I feel like that was a blessing for me, especially this is my second time going away for money laundering. So I think that I'm very fortunate because it could have went a lot different, that's for sure.
5: You might remember back in season one that Val has been to prison before As a teenager, she fell in with the wrong crowd and was used as a drug mule. Before Jay, she was married to notorious Latin King's boss, Rudy Cato Rankel, also known as King Cato. Before Cato, she was married at 21 for a short time to Valentin Reveles, who was working for the Juarez cartel. While she was married to Reveles, she became caught up in his business dealings.
7: Back in 2000, in my prior marriage, I was married to a, a drug dealer and he got indicted for a drug conspiracy. I deposited money in the bank for him in my accounts and that's what got me into trouble and he ended up cooperating against me and I went to prison for it. I received a 10 month split sentence where I was in prison for five months and the other five months I was on house arrest. There's consequences um, to everything that we do. And sometimes when you're in love with someone or sometimes when you're in a relationship, you don't think about certain things, you put yourself second and you don't realize how this can affect you. And I just hope that like By sharing my story, you know, I just want to bring awareness to, like, other women that have, like, walked in my shoes and that have, that are going through this. And sometimes you're living that life and it's like a really fast lifestyle, right? And you don't realize the consequences that comes with this life. I'm hoping that other women can make better choices than I did. I mean, it could be anything, taking a small gift from someone or just trying to be loyal to the person that you're with, whether it's your husband or your boyfriend and just trying to, you know, get through life. It's like, you don't realize that these choices that you make, they can affect you. And, and they can definitely change your life. And I'm hoping that other women can see my story and they can maybe think twice about it and not put themselves in that position. Every choice you make, it has a consequence for sure. I went through a lot of trauma. And, you know, I talk about abusive relationships all the time. And um, I think that it definitely affected my thought process and the things that I've done. But I honestly thought that it'd be different when I met Jay. I felt like, you know, Jay was totally different from any person I have ever been with. And so I saw the good in him, and I really thought that I could change him. And I was happy that the judge acknowledged that in court. And he did say that, I know that it was because of you, you convinced your husband to change his life. And I think with that type of validation, I felt like, you know what? this is for something. And I feel like our lives could have turned out a lot different than what it is today. And I feel like if Jay didn't make the choice that he made to change his life, he probably wouldn't be here today. And or me and my children, they probably would have wiped out our whole family.
5: How do you feel about, and how are you going to cope with prison? Is there anything you've thought about? And has it come up in your head about your own safety?
7: In court, you know, there's a Mexican lady in there. She was sitting in the back row. And I could just feel her eyes burning through me. And when I was walking out, she just looked at me and smirked. And I I was walking out of the building out of the courthouse, she was recording me and taking pictures of me. And it's scary because at the end of the day, there are people looking for us. And these are things that we have to continue to live with. And it just doesn't feel good at all. It is scary. You know, I've been to prison before, so I know what it feels like more so of just the fact of being alone. And I think that's what scares me. You know, just... You know, it's it's really hard to just, you know, do your time alone. And I think that's the part that scares me the most.
5: Val was with Jay as I was speaking to her after her sentencing. And I asked Jay what seeing his wife go through something that was ultimately caused by him felt like.
4: You can't even put what we're feeling, I guess, into words and to see her struggle, like, like she don't have to say it to me because I am, I understand. My kids will have to lose their mom for a little bit and that's hard, you know, like, being the person that I am, no matter what, I'm always gonna like hold myself responsible. Because I, you know, made a vow to protect her and keep her and my children safe, and I failed. And this is all consequences of, of me not being there for her or not being there for my children. It's gonna be hard. Come, you know, the day she has to turn herself in. And um, she would never be alone. I could promise her that she was always there for me and I I even felt, you know, I felt bad that I couldn't be with her at her sentencing, that I couldn't hold her hand and just, and it's going to be like that as well because of her being in prison, I am 100% sure that they're not going to allow me to visit her for safety reasons. The BOP would never allow me to step foot in their facility, so... You know, that's another hardship that we're going to have to face. The punishment on its own, it's it's one thing, but the pain that, that we're actually going to feel from that punishment, it's totally on a different level. It's hard to, to cope with, right? But moving forward, I have faith in my wife and, on, and us and our family that we're going to get through this. And we're going to be together again and, continue on what we just started to do was to try to live you know a normal life as a family again it's gonna be put on pause for a little bit and I just have um, I'm gonna have a lot of work to do I have to measure up to all of who Val is and that's the scary part to me for sure that could be a lot of things but I could never fill her shoes.
7: If I wasn't with Jay, I probably wouldn't be going through this today, for sure. My life would be a lot different, but at the end of the day, I don't regret it. I love my husband. I love my children. I love my family. And I feel like I'll be okay. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. I truly believe that this is the last obstacle. And I really know that once this is over, we can finally have a fresh start at life.
5: Val and Viv will be released from prison in early 2027. At the same time that Val and Viv were being sentenced for charges related to the spending of drug proceeds, El Chapo's wife, Emma Coronel Aspuro, was released from prison. She pled guilty to the distribution of cocaine, heroin. And over a thousand kilograms of marijuana, as well as laundering narcotics proceeds and assisting her husband, El Chapo, in his drug business. At her sentencing, the fact that she facilitated El Chapo's escape from prison in Mexico was also brought up. She was sentenced to just three years in prison and was released after 21 months and two weeks, a little under two years. As Val and Viv were getting ready to go to prison, Emma was parting it up in Los Angeles. Val and Viv's case brought up questions about what this means for future cooperators and the message it sends when cooperation is often based on trust between the cooperator and the government. I asked Michael Ferrara how important cooperators are when it comes to prosecuting a case.
6: It is the single most important thing is to be able to develop cooperators. Once a case reaches a certain level of complexity, and certainly when you're talking about like an international criminal organization as large as the Sinaloa cartel and all of the various things that that feed the cartel and help it to exist, the corruption, all of that, you you cannot put a case together without sort of like an insider point of view. I mean, you need a tour guide to to say like, this is how this worked and this is who this guy was and this is how we, we did this thing. So without that, those kind of massive cases just realistically don't come together. When the twins surrendered, I mean, they were certainly the largest drug traffickers in Chicago history, which is saying something, and at the time they surrendered, they were probably the largest in the United States. They were at the tippy-top of the drug world, but they were largely insulated from like the violence and, and a lot of the things that come along with that. And I think at that time, like around 2008, Mexico was just exploding with, with narco-violence. They were smart enough to realize that they were at the level where they either needed to become Chapo and everything that comes along with that, or turn against Chapo and try to basically hit the reset button. What they did was extraordinarily uncommon. They were at the top of the drug world. It is, ultra rare, where, where somebody in that position decides to hang it up before they're they're caught. That facilitated their cooperation in a way that was really unique. The twins were winning. like They were under no suspicion from the cartel or their customers or any of these other components of the drug trafficking and money laundering conspiracies in which they operated, that they were cooperating. So that enabled them to do all kinds of things that they otherwise would not have been able to do, resulted in, in a lot more people being prosecuted and much more robust prosecutions that were in some ways trial-proof because you had those recordings, you had the live seizures, you had undercover officers being inserted to a mix, all those kind of things. The flip side to that is because their cooperation was so long and, and ongoing, they were put under a microscope like few cooperators are. And so the U.S. government certainly knew more about them than your average cooperator. I mean, in some ways, you could say that they're penalized for, for their for their truthfulness. But I, I don't know that that's fair, because, again, you, you sort of have to go back to that all-or-nothing proposition. And so even if you look at it as what it was, a 14-year sentence, had they not cooperated and had they been arrested, they absolutely would have died in prison.
5: j and Pete cooperated to give their family a chance at a better life but taking down the world's most notorious drug lord was bigger than just the Flores family. I wondered what impact the twins' decision had on the drug epidemic and whether actually catching El Chapo
6: made a difference. The macro-level effect on drug trafficking, it's hard to claim it was positive at all. Drug trafficking still exists. The United States' problems are just as bad, if not worse, today than they were at any of the times when when Chapo was caught or, or convicted, sort of any of those those road markers, the cartel is cartels plural as kingpins like Chapo are taken taken out. Like the, the cartels tend to fracture and, and splinter, and the unfortunate trend has been like the most violent people, the people who are the most ruthless, the most willing to, to use violence to sort of enforce their business ways. are are risen to the top of these now splintered organizations. They don't get along, they fight each other. And so that is ramping up the violence side in in Mexico. And then on the supply side, I mean, again, things are as bad as they've ever been with much more potent, much more dangerous drugs. On your question, like, what did removing Ciampo do? If you look at it through that lens, like, there's no positive. But I, I don't think that's a fair way to look at it at all. You also just have to look at who Chapo was as a person, and he is one of the most prolific criminals in history. I mean, he is singularly responsible for thousands and thousands of deaths, whether they be drug-related deaths, whether they be deaths by violence, uh, political corruption where the the tentacles extend all over the world. He was just a completely terrible person uh, to leave out there in the world. and and so removing him and and the leadership structure that was around him that the twins were central to all of that like if you look at it through that lens it was historic and an immensely beneficial good thing that happened but again it's it's just a balance did chapo end drugs no of course not but to taking him out did that remove a grave threat to Everything from Mexican security to, to U.S. security to just having an infrastructure in place that was exceptionally good at moving drugs north, pulling money and guns south, all of those things that, yes, it was a positive to take him out of commission. The twins, they were supplying so much of the drug market, and in particular the cocaine market in Chicago and in, in the country, that when they left, I mean, there, there was certainly a temporary Drop in drug levels. So, I mean, at their peak, they were importing about two tons a month of cocaine into the United States. About a full ton of that stayed in Chicago and was distributed in the Chicago area, which is just a staggering amount. And then the other ton went all over the place. It fed New York, DC, places on the East Coast. And so, when that switch went from on to off, suddenly, and the twins weren't pushing that product into the United States, that definitely made levels drop and made things more expensive, all of that. And in the process of their cooperation, they took out people who were massive drug traffickers in their their own right. So all of them left in a comparatively short period of time. It's getting people who, who were very bad for society out of the mix. And for a short period of time, it did make cocaine in particular harder to get. But wherever there's that void, it's going to get very, very quickly filled. And it did. Cocaine levels rebounded. And, and right around that time is when the cartel started moving into, into the opioid markets. And Chapo and people like Chapo recognized that their profit margins were dramatically, dramatically higher with opioids, period, because they could grow poppies in, in Mexico. And then with synthetic opioids in particular, once they started to fully understand the benefits of fentanyl, how cheaply it can be manufactured, how potent it is where if you get one kilo of fentanyl into the United States, it's the same of getting 50 kilos of heroin. And so, I mean, that's just a horrific formula for more drugs and, and more dangerous drugs getting pushed out on the street. If you look at it holistically, like problems are worse after the Twins Cooperation than they were before the Twins Cooperation, which is a depressing thing to say, but but I think it's, it's a very true thing to say.
5: Despite the work to stop it, the drug trade continues to grow. The removal of El Chapo didn't end the Sinaloa cartel. His four sons, together known as Los Chapitos, took over the cartel in his place. They are known as being richer, more powerful, and more violent than El Chapo ever was. Los Chapitos use corkscrews, electrocution, and hot chilies to torture their rivals and feed people to tigers. In January of this year, 2023, one of El Chapo's sons, Olivido Guzman Lopez, the logistics manager for the cartel, was arrested in a bloody operation resulting in 29 deaths. In September, Olivido was extradited to the US. The other three sons continue to run the cartel. One of them, Ivan Arcavaldo, is now on the DEA's most wanted list, with a $10 million bounty on his head. A higher bounty than his father, El Chapo, ever had. As for El Chapo, he's still trying to appeal his sentence.
2: Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive Budget Beach Finder or find a featured, all-inclusive package to Generations Riviera Maya Resort and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are
3: gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
7: Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
3: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
5: Over the past three years, I've gotten to know the Flores family really well. In sharing their story, they opened up about things they've never spoken about before. Fifteen years ago, that one decision to turn themselves in set off a domino effect that led to where they are today. I couldn't help but wonder if Jay still felt it was all worth it. How do you feel about that decision you made all those years ago now to turn yourself in?
4: I don't live with regrets. Charlie, I, I trust in God that he has led us to this point I believe that like, everything that's good that came out of my decision was from him and I feel like everything that hasn't been good has been because of our personal mistakes and I would never want to change what You know, the positive outcome that that he has blessed us with. We're far removed from that life, except for our legal issues. You know, I've been home almost three years. It's been 15 years since we made that decision and we decided to turn our life around. And 15 years I got to be a husband and a father, even though I was away from my wife and children for 12 years. I still got to see my children grow and become these amazing young men and young women and I get to still be a father to my children. I feel like even though it was from afar, I still was able to feel that and there's nothing more important to me than that. I feel like that it's a blessing in itself that I would never second guess or never want to change. I still have my wife. I still have my family. And it, it was what I did it for in the first place. I'm looking forward to, you know, all the amazing opportunities that are await for us in the future. And and I know we're gonna get through this. I feel like we have to take the good with the bad and the bad with the good. And I honestly feel there's a lot more good us sharing our personal lives with you, with the world. It's about our suffering. It's about all these small decisions just snowball into a whole lot of suffering for so many lives, for so many of our family members, for our children, for us, and it continues. And it's a fight to just want to make things right. And I know that there's not many people who have you know, walked in those shoes as me and my brother who has made it that far up into the, you know, cartel life or drug trafficking life. And and there's a reason why my brother and I decided to change our lives along with our family, with our wives. You know, we want to change our lives because it's we would never choose anything else but our family. And... I just have this burning desire to not let this go, not let, you know, all my children suffering, my wife suffering, for it to be for nothing. I feel like we were meant to be here. We were meant to come this far and I feel like it was to share into our testimony, to, to our past life and hopefully inspire someone, not just in drug trafficking to say, hey, you know what? I was on the opposite end of something really bad. And through support, through my family, I had to endure some sacrifice. It was suffering, but after that suffering, because of choices I made, that I was able to turn that into something positive, something that could bring hope to other people, right? Something that could make my, so that my children could go back and say, hey, you know what? I spent all these years without my father, without my mom, But you know what, it came for a good cause because my dad was able to change his life around and he had an impact on this war on drugs. He had an impact on something that he helped create. And that's important to me. Like I have the potential that potentially, right? Change the way the war on drugs has been attacked or dealt with for the last 50 years.
5: Jay is now working with Dynamic Police Training to educate law enforcement on the intricacies of the drug world. He runs a course called From Kingpin to Educator.
4: I did my first conference, my first law enforcement conference. I was a guest speaker for 450 officers in August. And it's state federal uh, law enforcement and some local law enforcement. And uh, by chance I was speaking to, to these law enforcement officers, and I got pulled to the side by four DEA officers that were part of the SWAT team that raided my home when they came to arrest Val. And that is a moment where it's like, wow, like, they were in my house not so long ago, and they came arrested my wife, but yet here I am working with them, right? And and I guess it's just another just unbelievable mark in our story that it's hard to, you know, it's probably hard for, for people to believe or hard for people to understand. And it's been like that for a lot of my life. And I'm just thankful and grateful for the opportunity that I will be able to do that moving forward. And it does make me It makes me feel good. I feel like I'm finally doing something positive, especially with something that filled me and has brought so much hardship and heartache. and, And now here I am, you know, in a room full of law enforcement who are eager to listen to me, eager to learn. And it's, talk about coming full circle, right? Like, you know, I started on one end and, And now here I am, you know, working with law enforcement, you know, across the country, around the world. Sharing, I guess, all my suffering, right? You know, and everything I've learned since I was seven years old in drug trafficking. It's kind of weird because people are like, wow, yes, you're helping the same people that are imprisoning your family, right? But no, I I don't look at it that way. Not at all. I understand the, the... the system more than anyone, and I don't have carry no, that is.
5: Are the classes and conferences something that you're going to do moving
4: forward now? Yes, it's, it's my plan, I'm moving forward, I'm doing conferences and classes, I have 16 set dates already, and I will continue working on those classes as much as I'm able to get booked, right, and... and as long as law enforcement officers, you know, here around the country, around the world, are open to hear me, then I'm going to be there. I always say that. Well, for my brother, like, there's not anyone out there that could, that has the knowledge and expertise that we have. And I said this, you know, to law enforcement. Like I was not made in Mexico. I was born in Chicago. Made in America, and if I could share this with law enforcement, share all the knowledge and the expertise that I think I have, and hopefully they could take that and use it in a positive way, I think to me that's like, that's the biggest reward. I'm one of those persons that believe that anything's possible, especially if you look at my, my life and where I came from and where I ended up at and, you know... Our family struggles and to have the opportunity that I I have, it it wasn't given to me, Charlie. I had to create it. I had to push for it, I had to fight for it. And I'll continue to fight for what I believe in and I think that we all have it in us and we just got to look for that strength and courage to go through with it.
5: Alongside the classes, Jay is looking for more steady work He's been working on a resume that he showed me and is hopeful that someone will take a chance on him. Jay's dedicated to turning his life around and writing a new legacy for the Flora's name. But it's not always that easy when you have a criminal record like Jay's that follows you through life. Half of the 78 million Americans with a criminal record have difficulty finding a job and making a living. Nearly a third of federal inmates don't find work at all after they're released. Will someone like Jay, or anyone with a criminal record, get a second chance? Can you read this?
4: Can I read it? Yeah, sure sure you could read it. It's it's, an email there. Do you want to
5: read it? No, you can read
4: it. Okay.
5: I recently came across something unusual, a tweet from Elon Musk that spoke to me. Drug dealers know more about running a business than 95% of college professors. So here I am today taking a leap of faith and sending you my resume. I worked on it with intentions of sending it to a like-minded business person like yourself. My goal is to utilize the business skills I've acquired in the drug trade and apply these street smarts toward doing something positive in the corporate world. Although I chose the wrong path in life, it's helped me shape me into the businessman I am today. I am a senior operations executive and international logistics specialist. My twin brother and I built a $2 billion drug trafficking enterprise from nothing. We encountered far more obstacles than your average corporation. But with determination and strong will, I pushed through day-to-day challenges by focusing on innovative solutions. I acquired the skills needed to do a thorough risk assessment and quickly mitigate any potential losses because in our business, there was less room for error. Can I carry on? With 20 plus years of extensive experience, I gained the entrepreneurial skills necessary to successfully develop, structure, manage, nurture, innovate, and grow any business. Despite being driven and having a fierce hunger for success, I am relatable, willing to learn, adapt easily, and have the interpersonal skills needed for team building and customer relations in any industry. Although I was born into the world of drug trafficking, at the height of my career, I decided to denounce that life and take a road less traveled At the young age of 26, my brother and I gave it all up, voluntarily turned ourselves into the authorities, dismantled our organization, and served a 14-year prison sentence at a federal correctional institution in a special WITSEC unit. Today, I live under a new identity and I'm a firm believer in redemption and second chances. I know I'm here for a reason and have a bigger purpose in life to fulfill. I'm in the process of rewriting my story And with your help, I hope to remove stigmas and leave a positive imprint in this world. the end of our time with the Flores family thank you for coming on this journey with us and a big thank you to the Flores family for sharing their story
1: stay tuned for the Flores Twins docu-series and scripted series coming soon
5: Surviving El Chapo The Twins Who Brought Down A Drug Lord Season 2 is hosted by Curtis 50 Cent Jackson and me Charlie Webster Produced by myself and Jackson McLennan. Assistant producer and research support by Casey Hertz. Edit and sound design by Nico Palella. Theme music and original score by Ryan Sorensen. It's executive produced by Curtis 50 Cent Jackson and me, Charlie Webster. Curtis 50 Cent Jackson presents a Lionsgate sound and G Unit audio production exclusively for iHeart Podcasts.
0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW route void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the best all-inclusive
2: vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ocean by H10 Hotels and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.
3: Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end.